Thank you all for joining us for a discussion of war powers after Afghanistan. I'm Kristen Eikensier, a professor at UVA Law and the director of the National Security Law Center, which is sponsoring this event along with two fantastic student organizations, the National Security Law Forum and Law Innovation Security and Technology, or LIST. I want to just start by saying we owe great thanks to Peter and our UVA IT team and to our events director, Rebecca Clath, for their help in making this event run smoothly. And of course, to our panelists. Uh, so we are joined by three experts on war powers. Let me introduce first Tess Bridgman. Tess is the co-editor-in-chief of Just Security and a senior fellow and visiting scholar at the New York University School of Law's Reese Center on Law and Security, where she created the War Powers Resolution Reporting Project. She previously served in the White House as special assistant to the president, associate counsel to the president, and deputy legal advisor to the National Security Council during the Obama administration. She also served in the State Department in the office of the legal advisor as special assistant to the legal advisor, and prior to that, as an attorney advisor in the Office of Political Military Affairs. Next is Adil Huck. He's a professor of law and the Judge John O. Newman Scholar at Rutgers Law School, and he serves as the co-director of the Rutgers Institute for Law and Philosophy. He's the author of Law and Morality at War, and he focuses on the law of armed conflict and the philosophy of international law. He's an executive editor at Just Security and serves on the editorial boards of the journals Law and Philosophy and Criminal Law and Philosophy. And finally is Ona Hathaway. She is the Gerard C. and Bernice Latrobe Smith Professor of International Law at Yale Law School and Director of the Yale Law School Center for Global Legal Challenges. She is a member of the State Department's Advisory Committee on International Law and previously served as Special Counsel to the General Counsel of the U.S. Department of Defense, where she was awarded the Office of the Secretary of Defense's Award for Excellence. So I'm going to ask them some questions to kick off discussion and then we'll open to question and answer. Please note that this event is being recorded, and if you'd like to ask a question, please type your question in the Q&A box. Okay, so with, with the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan at the end of August, President Biden declared an end to the quote-unquote forever war. The Afghanistan withdrawal does seem to mark an inflection point in discussions about U.S. war powers, both in terms of domestic law and international, but it's probably not so simple as simply declaring an end to longstanding conflicts. The United States has announced plans to continue over the horizon operations against terrorist targets in Afghanistan. And repeatedly over the last year, the Biden administration has launched airstrikes against Iranian-backed militias in Iraq and Syria. So Ona, let's start with you. There've been moves in Congress to reform or repeal existing authorizations for use of military force or AUMFs, some of which you've supported and in testimony. So can you explain a little bit what, what are those existing AUMFs and which ones do you think should be or will be repealed? Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, for having me here. And it's such a pleasure to, to be in conversation with you and with Tess and Adil. Um, so there are two main authorizations that, um, that are relevant uh, these days. So one is the 2001 authorization for use of military force, which you'll probably hear us referring to as the 2001 AUMF. Um, that was passed uh, seven days after the 9-11 attacks, um, and it authorizes the president to use, quote, all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons that he determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on 9-11 or harbored such organizations or persons. And, and it elaborates that that's in order to prevent any future acts of international terrorism. So this 2001 authorization for use of military force uh, or AOMF is the main legal authority that um, is the basis for most of our counterterrorism operations even today. Um, and it is used for a wide array of operations, not just uh, follow-on operations in Afghanistan, uh, but operations in Syria and Somalia and Iraq and a whole host of other places. Um, and then the second major authority is the 2002 authorization for use of military force, or 2002 AUMF. And this one was passed uh, when there was a decision um, to go to war against Iraq. And at the time, the fear was that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Um, and so that AUMF gives the president the authority to, uh, to, to act as he determines to be necessary and appropriate in order to first defend the national security of the United States against the continuing threat posed by Iraq, and second, to enforce all relevant UN Security Council resolutions regarding Iraq. 
So that was really very specific to the Iraq um, operation. Um, and, uh, and I'll start with that when it comes to the question of repeal. She said, which of these you know, do I think should be repealed? So the easy, the low-lying uh, uh, low fruit is, is a 2002 authorization for use of military force. It was passed for a very specific purpose, which was to authorize military intervention into Iraq to address the threat of uh, weapons of mass destruction by Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Saddam Hussein obviously is no longer in power. There, uh, it was determined not only are there not today weapons of mass destruction, but there weren't at the time of the operation weapons of mass destruction. And there's a great deal of agreement that that authorization no longer is necessary. In fact, the Biden administration has made clear that no uh, current ongoing authority, uh, this is not being used for any current ongoing operations. Um, and it has endorsed um, the, the, the end of the 2002 authorization for use of military force. So that one is, um, is kind of the, the, the easiest of the two. The 2001 authorization for use of military force, as I mentioned, is a little tougher because it is the basis for basically all of our counterterrorism operations or nearly all of our counterterrorism operations um, throughout the Middle East. And there, the debate really is around uh, repeal and replace. Although there are some people who say we shouldn't replace, um, but I think if there's likely to be action from Congress, it would be repeal and replace. And I think there's pretty good agreement that this is very outdated and it no longer is an appropriate authority for, for the massive amounts of operations that we are relying on it for. But the difficulty has been in coming up with the replacement um, and figuring out what exactly does that look like, how broad or narrow, which would be the parts of that. So I'll leave it there because I'm sure we'll unpack that. I know uh, Tess and Adele have views on both of that, but those are the two key authorizations that, that um, are under discussion these days. Great. So, so Tess, let's turn to you. You've written and testified before Congress about um, the War Powers Resolution and some of the reforms that could be made and should be made to the War Powers Resolution. But sort of going beyond these, the arguably narrower statutory authorizations for the use of military force to this really broad question of where should war powers lie and how much of a check should the, the Congress have on the president. So can you talk a little bit about some of the reforms you'd like to see to the War Powers Resolution and maybe also give us your, your uh, prognosis for the likelihood that they pass Congress. Sure, of course. And, and I also just want to start by thanking you for having all three of us here uh, for this conversation today. It's, it's great to have this conversation with such uh, thoughtful colleagues who put so much time and, and energy into these issues over the years. Um, so war powers reform deals with a different problem than these outdated AUMFs present. It's the issue that under Article 2 of the Constitution, the president arguably has a kind of residual authority to use force to defend the United States against sudden attack or repel sudden attacks, as, as the framers put it, uh, whereas Congress in Article 1 has the power to declare war and, and really to bring the nation into armed conflict. That was always seen as something the legislature should do. Um, over many, many decades, uh, the executive branch has accreted to itself more and more of that war-making authority. And we've now gotten to the point where Article 2 within the executive branch is seen as so capacious that the president can use force abroad anytime that doing so is, is deemed to be in the national interest uh, and doesn't constitute, quote, war in the constitutional sense, which uh, is, is intended to be a, a question looked at by the nature, anticipated nature, scope, and duration of the, the hostilities at issue. Would they rise to a level that really, okay, we should reserve that to Congress under the declare war clause? And what that has meant in practice recently, it, it has to be kind of a full-scale either you know, ground operation where the US is taking lots of casualties as well as the opposing force, or it has to be something of long duration or engaged in say with another superpower, uh, but very rarely if ever has, has the US seen that bar to be met. So with article two being so broad, how do we kind of reset that, that balance so that Congress can say, wait a minute, no, article one is supposed to be who, who weighs in, the people's representatives are supposed to decide when, when we go to war. Um, the War Powers Resolution was supposed to do that. So it was enacted in 1973 over then President Nixon's veto in the wake of the Vietnam War. Uh, and it was on its face a really powerful tool. It gave Congress the ability first to know what the executive branch was doing through a series of reporting requirements. And it said, whenever the president is getting us into hostilities or a situation where there's a serious risk of hostilities, um, 
he has to tell Congress within 48 hours, and then within two months, that activity has to cease unless Congress has stepped in and authorized it in the interim. Uh, and meanwhile, at any point, Congress can take a vote using these expedited procedures and by concurrent resolution can require the president to terminate the use of armed forces abroad. So this was a powerful tool. It has not worked out that way in practice for a whole range of reasons uh, from executive branch interpretation of key provisions that have, have rendered it less meaningful to subsequent Supreme Court decisions to the actions of Congress itself. Uh, I won't get into all of that right now, but let's just talk about maybe three or four of some of the key problems and, and how Congress could go about fixing them. And I'll, I'll try to be quick here, but we can, we can tease out more of these uh, as, as we discuss. One is that hostilities is the key term in the statute. Uh, it's what triggers presidential reporting, at least uh, a good swath of the presidential reporting, but it's also what triggers uh, the, the so-called termination clock. So after 60 days when the president has to terminate force, unless it's been authorized, that's if the hostilities remain ongoing. Um, and the, uh, the executive branch has taken narrower and narrower interpretations of that term. So whereas with the AUMFs, they get interpreted as broader and broader, and Article 2 is broader and broader, this tool that would constrain the executive right, has been narrower and narrower. And this actually started way back in 1975 with executive branch interpretations of, of hostilities that were so narrow that many of the situations Congress had envisioned were already kind of taken off the table as, as not constituting hostilities unless the US was essentially already in a real shooting war. Um, so that's been a major problem and is one that is uh, easy to fix in theory. All Congress has to do is define hostilities in the statute, which it didn't do in 1973. Um, the executive branch is probably not too keen on that because it has so much leeway now using its own interpretation of hostilities. So the, the art of getting to yes on what that definition might look like might be tricky, but I will say the uh, two vehicles for war powers reform that have been introduced on a bipartisan basis in both the House and the Senate um, have definitions of hostilities. They're very similar to each other. And I think either of those would be a, a really good place to start if not finish. I think those are, are very workable solutions that rely on the um, use of lethal force as the standard for when the executive branch is getting into hostilities. Uh, second, that termination clock that's currently 60 days, 90 in certain circumstances, sort of tempts the executive branch to say, why don't we see what we can do within this two month period using force under Article 2 and we have enough time uh, that before that termination clock runs out, maybe we can start a war and win it, essentially. Um, you saw that in the former Yugoslavia, you saw it in Somalia, you saw it in Libya, you've seen it under Democratic and Republican presidents. Um, there are some other issues with the termination clock we don't need to get into, but the, the short version here for our purposes is shorten the clock. And I will say the Senate and House versions of the War Powers Reform Bill that's, that's percolating through uh, Congress right now both shorten it to 20 days with a possible extension to 30. And in reality, anytime the president is doing an actual, say, hostage rescue mission or defense of an embassy or you know, rescue of, of US nationals in peril abroad, those operations tend to take a few days, sometimes a little longer. Uh, so 20 days in terms of immediate defense of the nation actually seems to me to be a pretty um, reasonable place to, to draw that line as opposed to the current 60. Um, and in the interest of time, why don't I just talk about a third and not, not get to all four, and we can do that in Q&A if you'd like. Um, enforcement has become a, a key problem, uh, and, and I, I won't get into all the reasons why the concurrent resolution mechanism hasn't been working as intended, uh, but I will say that the uh, thing that kind of all, all branches and you know scholars and activists, everyone agrees on, is that the power of the purse is one of Congress's most important and core powers, um, and that an automatic funds cutoff that would say the president cannot act in a way that contravenes uh, the war powers resolution, uh, and uh, which would mean, you know, not not using force unless authorized after, say, 20 days under the new versions of the law that, that haven't been passed yet, or 60 under the, under the current law, um, that an automatic funds cutoff will kick in. And that's backed by the very powerful Anti-Deficiency Act that executive branch officials know means business, that you can't obligate or, or um, appropriate funds that, uh, that have not been authorized. So the uh, kind of 
key issue here is how how does uh, how does the executive branch uh, take really seriously that that termination clock? Well, an automatic funds cutoff uh, would make it much more likely that that troops are actually withdrawn when that period ends. Um, there are all sorts of things we could talk about in terms of transparency, reporting requirements, defining the president's powers more clearly, and at least from the Article One perspective. Um, but those are some of the key things that Congress has has within its grasp to do in pending legislation. I think the question remains to be seen: where will that give and take with the executive branch come out, uh, where we have provisions that can actually be either signed into law, ideally, or where you'd have a, a strong enough majority in Congress to override a veto. Uh, and that may be a, a bar that's that's hard to reach in the near term. So stay tuned as, as these percolate through. Great, that's a wonderful overview of a, of a complicated subject. Um, so I'm gonna turn now from the domestic law issues to the international, and Adil, I'll, I'll come to you on this. You've written about the international law issues with some of the recent U.S. airstrikes, and so I wanted to ask you specifically about U.S. plans to continue these so-called over-the-horizon strikes into Afghanistan. So how do you expect the United States to justify such strikes as a matter of international law now with the Taliban government in power there? Will these be the same arguments that the U.S. has used, for example, in striking Iranian-backed militias in Syria? And I guess perhaps most importantly, are these good arguments? Thanks very much. Uh Thanks for having me. And it's a real pleasure to be on a panel with Tess and Una. Um, so I expect the US to justify such strikes as an exercise of self-defense under the UN Charter uh, for two reasons. Uh, so first, the US has interpreted self-defense so expansively that it can justify almost anything the US might want to do. And second, the US can assert self-defense unilaterally. It doesn't need to persuade other members of the UN Security Council, doesn't need to ask the Taliban for their consent, would essentially accept them as the legitimate government. It also doesn't need to pretend that the deposed government is still in charge. Um, so let me explain what makes the US view of self-defense so expansive. It's really a combination of several elements. So first, the US says that an actual or imminent armed attack by a non-state actor triggers the right of self-defense. And once triggered, that right justifies the use of armed force on the territory of another state without its consent. Those are the elements that get the most attention and they're quite controversial, but it's really the other elements that, that fill out the picture. So the US takes the view that any use of deadly force by a non-state actor, irrespective of its gravity, constitutes an armed attack and triggers the right of self-defense. And once triggered, the right of self-defense continues to apply and justifies the use of armed force until the non-state actor is defeated or hostilities end, even if no armed attacks are imminent or ongoing. And finally, self-defense may be exercised wherever the non-state actor is present or operating, even if no armed attack will originate from that location. It's enough that cross-border force will weaken the non-state actor's overall military capability. So I hope you see when we put these elements together, they really transform the right of self-defense into a right to endless war endless both in time and in space. So if an Al-Qaeda member shoots or stabs some innocent person in America or at a US embassy, we can use military force in every country where Al-Qaeda members are present for as long as Al-Qaeda exists in some form. Now you asked, uh, are these the same legal arguments that the US uses elsewhere, including in Syria? Uh, and yes, essentially uh, these are the same arguments. There might be some factual differences. And most importantly, you asked, are these good arguments? Uh, no. Uh, so I won't bore you all with my views, uh, but I will note uh, that few other states, if any, agree with every element of the US understanding of self-defense. So some states, uh, China, Brazil, and Mexico, reject the premise that non-state actors can trigger the right of self-defense. But even close US allies reject other important elements of the US view. So many of our NATO allies think that an armed attack by a non-state actor can trigger the right of self-defense, but only a very grave use of force qualifies as an armed attack. So the ISIS invasion of Iraq would qualify, but a single car bomb would not. Other allies, or some of the same allies, uh, think the right of self-defense is activated by an armed attack by a non-state actor, but then it deactivates when the attack ends. And the right only reactivates if a new attack occurs or is imminent, but you can't just wage war against a non-state actor 
uh, until uh, you, you completely eliminate it. And finally, a number of allies think that self-defense can justify the use of force on the territory of another state, but only to prevent an armed attack originating from within that state. So you can target the people who would carry out an attack or the equipment they plan to use, but you can't target any group member anywhere in the world just to degrade the group's overall strength. So it's really for those reasons that the US view of self-defense is a lonely one. Uh, that said, US strikes in Afghanistan may not receive much pushback from the international community. Uh, no one wants to look like they're siding with the Taliban. Uh, but even that political reality may change if US strikes kill large numbers of civilians and those killings are reported in close to real time. So we'll see. Great. Um, so uh, let's go back to the domestic law issues for a bit and then, and then turn back to the international ones. We've put a lot of issues on the table. Um, so, you know, we talked about reform proposals for both the AUMS and for um, the War Powers Resolution. And I'm curious, I guess this is mostly for Tess and, and Ona. Uh, do you think that reforming the domestic law authorizations and the restrictions on executive branches of use of, use of force will actually change presidential practice? Or is this really just going to change the theory used to justify such practice? So we've seen administrations of both parties criticized for, for stretching the AUMS, usually the 2001 AUMF. The Trump administration was criticized uh, for stretching the 2002 Iraq AUMF to cover targeting an Iranian general in Iraq. But presidents also tend to always cite their inherent constitutional authority. So is it, I guess the, the question really boils down to, is it better to have presidents stretch statutory authorizations or is it better to have them stretch their constitutional authorities and why? So I can take a first stab at that and then uh, Tess can jump in. Um, I think the first answer is neither, um, but I will say that I think one of the reasons there has been such slow movement on AOMF reform is precisely this anxiety. I think early on the Obama administration when it came into office recognized that 2001 AOMF was, was really expansive and it probably would be ideal to, to reform it, um, but, uh, but didn't think they were gonna get the kind of authority they wanted from Congress and thought they could kind of work within this 2001 AOMF um, reasonably well. And they were pretty reluctant to, to rely on, on constitutional authority and stretching constitutional authorities. The problem is that we've gotten to a point now where that the, the, the 2001 AOMF is interpreted so broadly that, it, that first of all, it, it really provides relatively little limitations on what the president can do. And then second of all, it's created a precedent in a sense of its own that this kind of interpretation of the president's statutory authority to use military force is appropriate. Um, if you actually go and read the AOMF, it bears very little resemblance to the interpretation that the um, executive branch now gives to it. It doesn't say anything about associated forces, which is a term that is usually thrown around when we talk about the AOMF, but that's, a, that's an interpretive gloss that's been given to it over, over the years. Now, what I will say is that if you're gonna tackle this problem though, it, you really have to tackle it ideally um, on both fronts. And so I think if you both, reform the AOMF, so withdraw the, uh, repeal the 2002 AOMF, ideally repeal and maybe replace the 2001 AOMF with a more limited authority, but then accompany that with the war powers reforms that Tess described. And in particular, um, the enforcement provision she mentioned at the end, I think is absolutely essential. So that if the president then oversteps the bounds of his authority, um, that that triggers um, the Congress's spending power and a withdrawal of authority to expend funds to support that operation, then it's going to be much more difficult for the president to, to kind of fit, play fast and loose with the law because there's actually going to be a hammer uh, behind uh, the, the limits on the war powers resolution. Um, now, presidents may challenge that um, in court, you know, so there, there might be ongoing fights, but I think you're going to be less vulnerable to the problem we're now vulnerable to, which is there's two ways in which the president can kind of expansively interpret his authorities, um, and both of them ways that, 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 um, that can avoid, um, you know, having to ever go to Congress to, to ask for authority to act. Um, but I'll turn it over to Tess to, to, to add more to that. And I, I, of course, agree with all that. I think I, I would just add a few things. One is kind of stepping back from first principles. I think we would probably all agree that it is 
normatively and constitutionally desirable for the president to be acting after being granted authority by Article One to use force. So that's that's what the Constitution envisioned, except for rare instances of immediate self-defense. Um, and that's that's where we should still be. And I think you know Adel explained how the theory of self-defense has has gotten so broad. Um, that that's where you see really um, the need for war powers reform to to come in at the same time as AUMF reform because Article Two Article Two claims are are now so broad. I I don't actually buy necessarily the idea um, that if we didn't have as much statutory authority on the books, these standing force authorizations, that Article Two would get broader because I actually don't see how it could get broader than it already is. Um, the national interest test is so broad and the war in the constitutional bar is so high. Um, I, I, I don't see a lot of fact scenarios that that stretch that even further. And that's just based on claims that have already been made by presidents of both parties. So I, I'm not I'm not as worried about that. I do think though that without war powers reform, you're just gonna continue to see that whether you have AUMF reform or not. Um, on the AUMF reform side, the other thing I would I would add is that um, you know, I I actually am, am one of those people who thinks that the 2001 AUMF isn't that vague. It has a description of the two groups that are intended to be targeted. It has three different limiting principles uh, packed into it, which we could get into if you want, but some of them sound in international law, there's in domestic law. Um, and what we've learned is that that wasn't clear enough and we need even clearer boundaries uh, and, and you know limitations on how the executive branch can interpret the terms that are used. And I think that means clearly, and I think one of the most important things we would need in any new, new AUMF would be a clause that says it cannot be interpreted to apply to any groups or nations that are not named on the face of that AUMF without coming back to Congress for a new vote under ordinary procedure. Um, and that's something that uh, I think will will go farther towards hemming in this boundless, you know, what's gone back to what the W. Bush administration called global war on terror way of thinking about how the U.S. uses force abroad. Um, I think that would go farther towards doing that than almost anything else we could do. So that uh, and a sunset, <laughs> as well as um, those key pieces of, of war powers resolution reform, I think would would go a long way towards hemming in uh, unilateral presidential uses of force. So moving away from, from the authorizations piece a bit that, you know, the United States has, has long relied on, on drones and sort of remote targeting via airstrikes um, and has an announced intent to continue doing that. But at the same time, the, the last U.S. drone strike before the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a horrific mistake. So for those who haven't been following this, on August 29th, U.S. forces targeted a car that they thought was an ISIS bomber headed to the Kabul airport. This was a few days after the suicide bombing at the airport. But in fact, this was a US aid worker who was arriving home to his family. Um, and so the strike killed 10 civilians, including seven children. The Department of Defense has apologized to the family and offered condolence payments. Um, but at the same time, an investigation by the Air Force Inspector General concluded that the strike didn't violate international law. So, you know, this is this is one example of civilian casualties from U.S. drone strikes. It's it's recent and it was very quickly revealed by the press that this was the case. But it's this is certainly not the only instance of this in over the last 20 years. But I'm curious whether you think that the attention that this strike has brought to the effects of drone U.S. drone warfare, um, will it change anything legally or practically going forward? Otto, can we start with you? Yeah, thanks. Um... So the August 29th street was, strike was horrific. Uh, it also almost certainly violated international law as understood by almost every country on earth other than the United States. Uh, so most of the world accepts two rules uh, specifically designed to prevent this type of mistake and to offset the kind of confirmation bias that the inspector general says led to this massacre. So the first rule says, uh, do everything feasible to verify that a potential target is not civilian, but is instead military. The second rule says, in case of doubt, consider or presume that people are civilians. So I hope it's clear how these rules combat confirmation bias. So the verification rule reminds you, your first job is not to confirm your suspicion that someone is a combatant. Your first job is to ensure that they are not a civilian. So don't just look for or focus on information consistent with them being a combatant, 
look for and demand information inconsistent with them being a civilian. So don't just ask, is this behavior that an ISIS-K member might engage in? Ask yourself, is this behavior that a civilian would not engage in or would be very unlikely to engage in? The rule of doubt reminds you, your job is not to satisfy yourself that a person is a combatant. Your job is to rule out the possibility that they are a civilian. So don't just ask yourself, how many data points can I assemble on one side of the scales? Ask yourself, have all those data points left any room for doubt? And the US Department of Defense has conspicuously not endorsed the first rule, the verification rule, and it has explicitly rejected the second, the rule of doubt. So instead, the DOD says that you just have to assess the information available to you in good faith, and as long as you form the sincere belief that a person is a lawful target, then you can kill them. I hope it's clear how the DOD approach throws the door wide open for confirmation bias and other forms of motivated reason. It essentially asks, here's a heap of information. What do you think? And when you ask such broad, unstructured questions, you can expect wrong answers. So Kristen, you ask, will this massacre change anything legally? It could. It could lead the DOD and the US government as a whole to finally accept these rules of international law that most of the world accepted 50 years ago. Anyway, yeah, Tess, go ahead. I'll add um, something else to the to the last point you said, Adel. It could it could change things. Uh, I think another way that this strike, and also I just want to note the the strike that's now coming to light, or some had had noted it years ago, but is now in that in being reported in mainstream media as of I guess just this morning or yesterday, the Baghuz strike in Syria in 2019, in which it appears that maybe 60 um, women and children were killed. Um, also through aerial bombardment by the United States uh, towards the end of the, the major counter-ISIS operations there. Um, you know, there's such now a systematic failing to properly investigate, disclose, uh, and, and actually uh, institute real accountability for these types of errant strikes, some of which may rise to the level of a war crime, others certainly do not. Um, and it, it has to be the case that very senior leadership in DOD, and I think also uh, across the other administration, uh, the the administration and other other places that that play into the targeting process, um, take some real responsibility that the system is broken, uh, and that means uh, everything from the the pre-strike target verification and uh, you know proportionality and feasibility assessments that that Adel was mentioning, uh, but up through to post-strike investigations. Uh, and then transparency uh, and, and accountability, uh, depending on the results of those investigations, which uh, themselves, I think, uh, we, we have to look at how are these investigations conducted? Who conducts them? Are they within, does it really make sense anymore to say they, they should happen within the same combatant command uh, or, or essentially by the same actors that conducted the strike? Um, those kind of really fundamental questions about what procedures are followed and how high up the chain of, of command uh, are we are we looking and are we asking those um, important questions? I think DOD now has to address those to, to deal with a real credibility gap, uh, and and it can. And I think current leadership would would want to, um, and that's that's something that uh, I hope we see more of uh, in the coming weeks and months uh, coming from senior levels uh, at DOD. So another. Um in some ways very backward looking, but also forward looking issue with respect to the US um, wars that it has been waging for the last 20 years is uh, Guantanamo Bay. So uh, despite Biden's declaration of an end to the forever war, in a Supreme Court oral argument last month in a case about a Guantanamo detainee, um, this is Abu Zubaida, Justice Kavanaugh asked the counsel for the government, and I'll just quote it here, is the United States still engaged in hostilities for purposes of the AOMF against Al Qaeda and related terrorist organizations? And the acting solicitor general replied, notwithstanding withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, we continue to be engaged in hostilities with Al-Qaeda and therefore de detention of detainees at Gitmo quote, remains proper. Do you, do you agree with this characterization? And more broadly, if, if that is an accurate characterization of where things stand now, will there be a time, do you envision a time when that will no longer be a, a justification for uh, continued detentions at Guantanamo? Can this facility ever be closed? If not, how does the US justify the ongoing detentions? 
I can take a first stab at that. I mean, I think the place we need to begin is by recognizing what an incredible stain the Guantanamo detention facilities are on the reputation of the United States. Um, and what a real tragedy it was, in a sense, that, that, this, that this facility was established in the first place. It was established on Guantanamo, largely to take advantage of the fact that that's in Cuba, not in the United States, and therefore not subject to, um, they thought, um, constitutional oversight, oversight by U.S. courts, um, habeas corpus, um, and the like. Um, and, um, and, you know, we know now that torture took place um, at Guantanamo, um, that there were, the detainees there were subject to horrific treatment. And, um, and that's a history that I think is important for us to bear in mind as we think about kind of how do we proceed from here. Um, it's also the case that Guantanamo has become quite a rallying cry for terrorist groups around the world against the United States. It's sort of the evidence the U.S. sort of talks a good game, does, but doesn't actually live up to the principles that it that it claims. And and that's just devastating and really undermines what it, what what the purpose in theory of of, of this. Um, of this facility is, which is to protect the national security of the United States, but if it has the precisely the opposite effects, and that's really um, devastating. So as to the question as to whether um, there's ongoing authority to detain under the 2001 AUMF, um, this has been litigated pretty extensively um, in the courts over the years. Every time Obama said combat operations in, in Afghanistan are over, there was you know, a, a flight of, of um, habeas petitions filed on behalf of detainees in Guantanamo saying, well, you know, then, if, then you should let me out because this means the end of the authority to, to detain me and the detention authority for um, all the people being held in Guantanamo is the 2001 authorization for use of military force. Um, uh, you know, if the question is, will the courts find that the authority has expired? I think that's unlikely because the courts have been very um, deferential to the executive branch's interpretation of its authority under the 2001 AUMF. If the question is, should, um, in, in a proper reading or understanding of the 2001 authorization for use of military force, um, is it fair to read that as continuing to provide detention authority? Um, I mean, I'm with Tess in thinking that if you read the AOMF, it's actually pretty narrow. And, you know, given the fact that the operate we killed Bin Laden, that the people who were involved in 9-11 attacks have, have, have uh, you know, been, um, have, have almost certainly been, um, uh, killed in targeted killings, or there, or uh, might be subject to detention, um, ongoing detention on the basis of, of being convicted of, of their actions. Um, that doesn't seem to be likely to to be core to the authority to continue to hold people. I think the challenge that we face is we're down to I think it's 39 people now. Um, there are some uh, people there who um, are considered to be sort of truly bad guys, but you can't try them because a lot of the evidence against them was obtained in the course of torture. Um, and then there are others um, where um, there's reluctance to let them go for various reasons. And the question is now, what do you do with them? Um, the US Congress has put in place limitations on the capacity to transfer them to the United States. Um, if that was lifted, then you could transfer them to the United States um, and probably to long-term detention facilities in the US. Many of the advocates on behalf of these detainees actually are not big fans of that because the conditions of their life would, would probably get worse, not better, um, because a supermax facility in the United States is actually less pleasant than the current day Guantanamo um, facilities. Um, I think we're, the problem is we're really stuck in a mess right now because many of these people can't be tried um, because there's not good evidence against them because there wasn't an effort to collect evidence. The assumption was going to be that they were going to be held for a really long time or that there was going to be some kind of modest trial, but that real evidence wasn't going to be necessary. Um, and so those efforts weren't made and we don't have the evidence we need to actually convict them. I think some of them could be transferred for trial in the United States and Article Three courts um, on theories that are not available in a military commission's process, um, such as material support for terrorism or conspiracy, which are 
not available in, a, in, in Guantanamo because only law of war violations can be tried in Guantanamo. Um, and those are not war, law of war violations. But it's, I think every president has run into this problem. Um, and Obama declared on day one he wanted to close Guantanamo and of course didn't succeed in doing that. I think Biden would like to close Guantanamo. I think it's quite difficult to do that. One way in which he could do it, but I think won't do it, would be to just stop defending these cases. Um, uh, so, you know, that would be one way to resolve it, would be to, to stop making the claim that we have the legal authority to detain uh, the people being held at Guantanamo, have them ordered release, and then find a way to release them into the region, um, maybe under supervised authority of another, uh, of another state. Um, but um, the chances of that happening, I think, are pretty slim. Um, I'm curious to hear what Tess has to say. Yeah, I, I was, um, I, I had the good fortune to be the lawyer for Ambassador Dan Freed when he was the special envoy for Guantanamo closure, uh, and then worked uh, closely also with uh, Cliff Sloan, Sloan when he was special envoy and, and with Lee Wolofsky after that. Um, and I don't think there's ever been a, a problem of Congress making it impossible to close Guantanamo. I think the executive branch has it within its power to do so um, if, it, if it really commits to doing that as a, as a primary focus. And that's the question of how much, uh, how much focus do you, do you want to give to this problem? I would commend you all to Ian Moss's recent piece on just security about precisely how to close Guantanamo. He lays out a really uh, tight framework for the different uh, so-called categories of detainees, right? Those who have been charged with a crime uh, and who could, could be pled out. And his client, Majid Khan, is an example of that. Um, the others also should should um, uh, should be uh, looked at and under the same lens of what kind of plea agreement is possible, which achieves some sort of, of uh, accountability for uh, what they did in terms of terrorist acts, but also the torture that that many of those who have been charged uh, were subjected to by the U.S. government. Um, there's some transparency and and uh, maybe a, a small modicum of justice there as well uh, for those who have been approved for transfer by the United States. It's a matter of expeditiously and carefully trying to arrange transfer agreements with foreign countries. We've done this before. We've done this in a way that uh, administrations of both parties have considered safe and also to meet our, our uh, humane uh, treatment uh, upon transfer obligations, uh, the non-refoulement obligations that the United States has. Um, and for those who have not already been deemed uh, you know, uh, appropriate to transfer. Uh, the answer is simple: take a harder look and and find a, a suitable transfer arrangement. There's no one arguably left in U.S. custody uh, who could not be safely transferred if the U.S. negotiated an appropriate transfer arrangement with a third country. Um, so the the ability to do it is simply a matter of prioritizing it and facing whatever political blowback is inevitable because there will be political blowback for some of these transfers. Uh, I, I fervently believe that moving Guantanamo is not closing Guantanamo, so I think any U.S. detention option is, is short-sighted, um, but there, there are ways to do this if we prioritize it. But Kristen, I just want to turn back to your question briefly. That's the can we, uh, which is different than must we. Uh, you know, have hostilities ceased or are some of the detainees so gravely diminished that even if hostilities have not ceased, they should be repatriated or resettled? Um, those are harder law fact questions. Uh, I do think some of the detainees are so gravely diminished in terms of their physical and mental state that they should be repatriated or resettled regardless of whether hostilities have ceased. Um, but separately, I think the Biden administration does have to look group by group are we still in uh, an ongoing armed conflict with Al-Qaeda core? What is the strike tempo? Have they been attacking us? Are we attacking them? Is that changing as we have more distance between when we were in Afghanistan with boots on the ground and when we're in an over the horizon sort of capacity there? Um, I think we are very unlikely to see the Biden administration concede that hostilities have in fact ceased. Um, but that is a question that I think courts might look to more carefully. We recently saw the Ghoul case um, where the Biden administration was arguing a detainee who had been part of an organization that is no longer at war with the United States was still detainable. And the court said, no, he's not. Uh, and in fact, you can't double count him as part of this other force and also part of Al Qaeda. Um, so I do think there are some cases where we could start to see the courts look a little harder at the question um, than they did in years past. Uh, in part based solely on the passage of time, which is also what we saw in the Zubaida case. Um, so I'm a little bit more optimistic that it could happen, um, but only if there's that senior political will. 
Uh, and that's, I think, the real question behind whether we can close Guantanamo in the next few years. Great, so I want to open it up to Q&A. We've got a healthy Q building. Um, I'd like to start with Andrew Nell, who is a 2L here at UVA, and he is the president of LIST, one of our co-sponsors. So Andrew, I'll turn it over to you for your question. Great, thank you very much. And uh, thank you to all the panelists for being here. Um, so I wanted to turn to the issue of transparency. Um, before, prior to the US withdrawal, the Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction was blocked by the Pentagon from releasing data on Afghan National Security Force casualties, on territory held by the government, and just other information that it previously had been able to publicly release that was not classified. And the IG said it was his view that this was because the executive was trying to suppress information about the deteriorating state of the Afghan National Security Forces. and. In a similar vein, the Washington Post published what it termed the, the uh, Afghanistan Papers, which was a series of extensive documentation about how executive branch officials had misled the public and painted an overly rosy view, even while they privately had serious misgivings about the state of the Afghan forces. And so once the president is actually in a state where he's waging war, traditionally there's extreme discretion in how he does so. And so how should Congress, looking towards the future, think about building mechanisms of accountability and oversight once we actually are in a state of war? You've stumped the panel. I can take a very, very brief stab just to be, um, I think, uh, in, and in the interest of, of time, I'll, I'll try to be really brief, but it was obviously a, a huge question that could merit a panel of its own. Um, Congress um, can and should do the things that are within its normal toolkit. It should hold hearings. It should require briefings. It should require closed door briefings uh, where all the classified information that the executive branch has to bring to bear on an issue are, uh, are able to be disclosed to cleared members. And it should hold public hearings so that the public knows what's being done in war uh, in their name. Um, it should also legislate. And that's something that we've seen actually more and more successfully, especially with respect to transparency in the NDAA each year, the National Defense Authorization Act, which is sort of seen as the one must pass vehicle in this realm. It has had increasing transparency requirements added to it. Um, and I think that will continue. It's sort of a, once you ch once you chip away uh, at this idea that there's, uh, you know, there's a, sh a shroud of secrecy um, behind what goes on in war, um, there's there's more and more ability to um, to kind of add to what we know and to to kind of build uh, on on existing practice. Uh, I think you've also seen um, a kind of greater degree of uh, of um, questioning about whether best military advice is always uh, being offered by. Uh, senior generals who have been uh, waging this the same war essentially for 20 years. Um, and you saw even some in the general class kind of questioning publicly, um, did I give the president the best advice about the Afghan National Forces? Uh, and I think that kind of internal inward looking questioning and skepticism is really healthy. Uh, and I hope we continue to see that as well. So I think it's, it's a matter of Congress and the executive branch um, both asking, are we are we doing our best uh, to to ensure that we have the, the kind of accountability we need? Um, I'll I'll leave it there in the interest of time, but it's a great question. Anybody else want to weigh in? I'll just add one brief word, um, which is just that I think one of the challenges of transparency in this in this area is classification, really. Um, uh, binds everyone who's involved. And um, that has been used by the executive branch sometimes to make it harder for members of Congress to speak about these matters because much of what's happening, even if they are briefing Congress, they often want to do it in classified hearings and the briefings are often um, classified. And, um, and therefore members of Congress, even if they know these things are happening, don't have any way to um, to, to make them public. And it also is a way of shielding information from FOIA requests um, because uh, that is one of the justifications, national security considerations are one of the justifications for avoiding FOIA. 
So I do think one way in which um, we ought to take a, a closer look at, at how aggressively um, we classify so much of this information and try to find avenues for bringing information about what the US government is doing more into the public um, arena, because really this is acting on behalf of, of the American people. And you know this is American blood and treasure that's being spent. And um, so much of these conversations are happening entirely behind closed doors in ways that the American public just has no idea about what's taking place. And I think we need to, to pay more attention to that um, and be concerned about it and, um, and seek ways, for instance, for uh, requiring the executive branch to provide a public legal justification for, um, for military operations that take place right now. Uh, it generally doesn't have to make public what the legal basis is for, for a given military operation. Uh, and that makes it much easier to obfuscate um, and not have those justifications subject to as much scrutiny as may otherwise be the case. But I think you put your, your finger on a really important issue in this, in this area. Thanks. Um, so Adol, we have a question for you. Um, question says, and I'll paraphrase here a bit, uh, the, matter, the manner in which you framed your position on the August 29th airstrike leads me to believe that your interpretation of the principle of proportionality requires zero civilian casualties. As I understand proportionality, there's an acceptable number of civilian casualties when weighed against the military necessity. Or is your position deeper rooted in the principle of distinction with respect to the use of force? So I guess a, a way to reframe the question slightly is what, what exactly is the, the international law violation that, that you think is present in the August 29th strike? Is it a problem of proportionality or is it a problem of distinction? So it's a problem of distinction and really more broadly precautions. So the target verification rule, the rule of doubt, these are in a sense preliminary questions. So first you need to know who is the individual we're considering targeting? Are they a combatant or are they a civilian? And who are the individuals who may be nearby, who may be in harm's way? Are they, are they civilians? Are they combatants? And only if you answer those questions correctly, or at least reasonably, can you ask the proportionality question. Would the military advantage of uh, killing the person who we've now identified as a combatant outweigh the harm to the nearby individuals who we've identified as civilians? So in the August 29th case, um, the US made two mistakes. So first, they misidentified the person they were targeting. And second, they... Um, in a rather inexplicable way, identified a second man who I believe was uh, uh, his cousin uh, as a combatant who didn't even, so they never asked the question of proportionality because they identified both of these men as combatants. And as a result, we ended up with many dead civilians and no military advantage at all. And just because Tess brought up this incredibly disturbing incident from Syria in 2019, I'll note that here too, the um, US essentially, um, manipulated uh, the precautions questions to get the proportionality answer that they wanted to get. So what they said is this airstrike killed 80 people. It was proportionate because we've identified 14 as combatants and only six as civilians. What about the other 60 people who were women and children? The DOD says, well, it's not clear that they were civilian because sometimes women and children take up arms on behalf of ISIS. And that essentially allows DOD to take 60 lives out of the proportionality calculation by asking not, are we sure they were combatants, but are we sure they were civilians? And essentially turning the rule of doubt on its head and reversing it and turning a presumption that people are civilians until proven otherwise into a presumption that they're combatants until proven otherwise. So these rules are deeply related, but they are distinct. And we have to understand how they fit together uh, to, to, to have them work in a way that protects civilians. So as a, a last question here, I'll combine uh, two questions that have come in, one focused on the executive and one focused on Congress. So one of the questions says, we know Congress is negotiating with the Biden administration regarding war powers reform. On which specific powers do you think the Biden administration is likely to accept congressional restrictions? And then the flip side of the question is, on which of these um, reform efforts is Congress really willing to expend political capital? Um, so I'll invite answers to that and then give you each just one minute to, to wrap up for any concluding thoughts. 
I can start with what I think um, the Biden administration should accept, but I'm not I'm not sure uh, what it what it will do. Uh, I think when you see uh, a, a piece of legislation introduced on a bipartisan basis in both houses, and then uh, a number of the core aspects of it turned into NDA amendments again on a bipartisan basis, albeit on only on the Senate side thus far, but that would be addressed in conference. I think that that presents a real issue for the Biden administration to grapple with. Uh, and I think there is some really low hanging fruit. I think there's no reason not to accept uh, the enhanced reporting requirements. In my view, there's no reason not to accept shortening the 60 day clock to 20, because really if you're using more than those 20 days, you're launching something that doesn't look like a, a purely defensive operation in, in sort of uh, the terms that I think we should understand uh, where Article II's contours are. Um, and I think there's there's really no reason not to try to find a definition of hostilities uh, that that everyone can live with. I think the one in the legislation is good, uh, but I'd love to hear the Biden administration's view on that. And they haven't they haven't spoken yet. We don't have a SAP, a statement of administration policy on it, or really any other public statement. So I'd love that to be a question that that's posed to the administration, um, and I'd love that to be something that Congress is actively engaged in drawing out, so that the American people can hear what their view is of of uh, of what compromise they'd be willing to to live with uh, on that score. I think AUMF reform is going to be harder. Um, and I think it's because of the muddled question of who are we still at war with and who does Congress think we should be at war with? I don't think Congress is of, of one mind on that. So I, I tend to think war powers reform, uh, although uh, in some ways a, a bigger piece of work, uh, should be easier to get to good on in this in this in the shorter term. Whether we'll see it this year is is something I'm I'm not uh, uh, the jury is still out on. Uh, but I hope that question is posed to the administration in a way that uh, that gets a, a public answer. Great. So with apologies to those still on the queue, um, I'd like to give our panelists each just one minute for any concluding thoughts. Um, we'll go in, in reverse order of how you're appearing on my screen, which is. Adil, Ona, and then Tess. Um, well, thanks very much uh, for this discussion. Um, I guess my only concluding remark would be to encourage the students who are watching to stay engaged with these issues. Uh, there's a very serious concern uh, that as uh, US military policy evolves and we have fewer boots on the ground, fewer soldiers in harm's way, um, and as it becomes harder and harder to track civilian casualties, but these issues will recede from the front pages and people won't focus on them as much. And I just hope that, uh, you know, for students and, and young professionals on the call, that you'll stay engaged with these issues and make them uh, your focus uh, because US military actions will still take innocent lives, uh, whether they're on the front page or not. And so if you're thinking about where to devote your career and um, uh, your resources, I think these are issues that uh, deserve your attention. I'm in a similar spirit, I'll just say, you know, we're only going to make progress on these issues if people ask the hard questions and press for progress on these issues. I think um, as long as Congress thinks nobody's paying attention, as long as the executive branch thinks nobody cares if it acts without congressional authorization, then the status quo will, will continue. And I think we need to bear in mind the fact that we may feel um, at the moment like, uh, you know, some, depending on our political persuasion, we might be more inclined to think that one president is, you know, more trustworthy and therefore we don't need these legal constraints. And then, you know, depending on our political persuasion, that might shift if there's a change in the administration. But I think the reality is that these are constraints that are going to be in place regardless um, of administration. And if you want, say, you're a Democrat and you think, you know, I trust Biden, you've got to be worrying about who comes next. And we can't wait until there's another president in office who we want to constrain to start thinking about these issues. And so it's now that we need to be thinking about what kinds of constraints, what kinds of limits, what kinds of structures do we want to create to actually make um, these legal limits effective. And we have to do that while um, President Biden is in office because he actually has shown that he's open to the possibility of, of accepting some constraints on, on unilateral executive authority. And that's an opportunity for action that I hope that we don't pass up. Ditto to both of those comments. I think the only really brief addendum I would add, uh, the other group that we haven't really talked about and hasn't entered this conversation is service members. And I think 
you know, I'm, I'm from the post 9-11 uh, generation of, uh, you know, friends who've deployed two, three, four, five times uh, into combat or into situations where they might be far from a combat zone, but are still actively involved in those hostilities. And we haven't talked at all about the toll that takes on them and on their families. And that's something I think Congress is just starting to kind of key in on that they have service members in their constituencies who, who they need to have those hard conversations with. And I think that the upshot of that is if, if you have the courage to deploy, I should have the courage to vote. Um, so I think that's just something else that we should keep in mind as we continue to ask these hard questions is how much more do we wanna ask of, of those families? Um, and that's, um, uh, you know, something that I think should apply to all of us, whether they're in, in our families or not. That's a great way place to end. And I just want to thank you again, um, all of you for sharing your expertise and your really thoughtful comments on these issues. Um, and thanks to our, our student organizers and to the audience for attending. I hope this has been a, a useful conversation for everyone. And it's certainly a conversation I hope we will all continue. So thank you very much and have a great day.